keep your sexy thoughts about me and our guests to yourself, no matter how wonderfully perverted they are. Listen to the outro if you want to know how to connect and enjoy. Hello, lovely humans. I'm Wiley, and you are listening to Sex Stories, a podcast where people who like talking about sex inspire each other with stories. At least I feel inspired hearing from all of you, and I hope you feel the same way. Our guest today is a 33-year-old homo-flexible Slavic man who was socialized gay and is now opening up. He is polyamorous and has a handful of lovers in addition to a primary partner and is into edging. Neo-Tantra is a sexually benevolent dominant top. And he was trained as an anthropologist and relationship counselor, a radical fairy, and also has worked on and off as a Tantra practitioner. Welcome, Dobromil. Thank you, Ayo. I'm so happy to have you on. Can you start off by telling us if you had to rate yourself on a sexual shameometer with 10 being super full of shame and one being shameless, where do you fall today? I would say somewhere around two. So with my friends, partners and lovers, I have no problem talking about sex. I like it. It's one of my favorite topics. Sex is my hobby. But also I was raised in a place where it was not spoken about. So I still have this feeling deep in me and I can't uproot it that sex is something we shouldn't talk, sex is something private and parents come to mind. You know, like if my mother knew that I was sharing my private life with the whole world, she probably wouldn't be comfortable about that. But that's also a part of my autonomy now as an adult being to take that freedom to do that. Yeah, I can relate to that. (laughs) So. I hear that you have some lovers and primary partner. Can you give us a little overview of what your sex life is like right now? So right now, after four years at university, I took time off. So I'm traveling in Spain. It's very different here than in Copenhagen, Denmark, where I lived before. So people are much more up for play. (laughs) They read my profile. They are much more up for action. So my sex life is amazing. I had some great experiences here on the island. I'm practicing what I'm into. You said it now. I put in my profile, benevolent dominant top, and people read it and react to it and are curious about it. I can go deeper into that niche of my sexuality, which is just one of many. And just yesterday, I had an amazing sex on a remote beach. So I can tell you more about that later. I can't wait. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, can you tell us before we get there, what does sexy mean to you? Sexy for me is playful. What I mean by playful is that you have some sort of time and space which is different from the daily, from the normal. You have some sort of rules of the game in a way, and then you can explore and maybe stretch your boundaries, go into things that you might find dangerous, that scare you a little bit. It's like that sexy. But then also I like being physical. Physicality is sexy. Strength is sexy. Caring is sexy. And also the intense presence of those two or more people who are together uninterrupted by the outside world is just this bubble that makes it magical. Beautifully said. Can you tell us what happens to your shame-a-meter, if anything, when it's time to talk to a new partner about safer sex? And can you tell us what the ideal version of that conversation looks like for you? So, for example, yesterday on the beach, it was a remote place. Uh, it was a rainy day, but uh, the afternoon wasn't so rainy. And I met this boy out there in the wilderness. 
it's like my favorite. I'm also very much into nature and being outdoors somewhere. And then we descended down the cliff. We kissed and we touched and we found a nice space. And then when we were in the heat of the moment, I actually realized, okay, before we take off our underwear, let's stop for a moment. There are these five things that I like to share. The abbreviation is RBDSM. So R stands for relationship status. Tell him that I was polyamorous. I had a primary partner. He would tell me that he was single. B for boundaries, where you don't want to go with me right now. And for me, it was, I didn't want to go for unprotected anal sex. I didn't want my anus to be played with. I didn't feel comfortable with that. And I didn't want any pain. And he said, I have no boundaries right now. And I'm like, oh, yes, that's interesting. But then we shared the desires. What do we want to do right now with each other? So we wanted it to be slow and explorational. And as we spoke about it, I realized we're in such a remote place. I really want to be loud. I want to go as loud as possible. And he's like, yeah, me too. All right. S stands for sexual health. So I would share that I was tested a month ago and that I had one partner with whom I had unprotected sex, but we communicated about it and almost sure that he was clean. He told me about his experiences and M is meaning. So that's more etherical one. What does this mean for you? Why are you here? What do you want it to mean? So in this way, it's safe not only physically regarding the health, but also emotionally because we don't project something there. You know, if somebody is really into creating and building a committed relationship, and then they might feel betrayed if for me it is just a hookup or, you know, a playmate for an afternoon. So seeing if we are on the same ground, this conversation, these RBDSM points are very, very useful. That's so hot. And what a beautiful way to set a sexy container did you learn that studying anthropology or what? There is this Tantra festival that I went to before Corona hit in early 2019 in Croatia. And it was part of one workshop. So I learned it there. Definitely not at school. And sometimes it's great to use it. Sometimes it really fits into the space and sometimes not. Sometimes mystery also has its space. And I feel like the person is quite clearly communicating also with their nonverbal communication, or we have already spoken about it earlier. So it's not always that, but often I will just boil it down to boundaries and desires or a strategy for hygiene, strategy for sexual health. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I'm so glad that you spoke to that nuance because I am a person that loves literal explicit frameworks. So I will go ahead and like apply RBDSM, you know, to each new lover. It's very helpful for me to just have the reminder of like, oh, yeah, a lot of that can take place implicitly or with these other cues that I can look for. But I have to practice looking for them in my brain. So now can you take us back to your early years, formative, formative histories? When do you first remember hearing about sex? I don't recall hearing about sex verbally, but what I remember is a memory of my first big arousal. So there was this one day when my parents were not home and we had a babysitter. And in the evening, there was the film Blue Lagoon playing on TV. And that was about these two teenagers getting stranded in a deserted island. And, you know, 
slowly, slowly, they become teenagers. And at some point, they find out that there is this thing that makes them feel really, really good. And my understanding at that time was like, you know, I knew as little as they did. And then, you know, they were doing it. And at some point uh, she got pregnant. It was a boy and a girl. And then they didn't know. She, he told her, oh, why are you eating so much? You're fat. <laughs> and at some point, you know, she was bleeding and crying. And he was like, are you injured? What happened to you? And she gave birth. And for me, it was such an impactful moment where... I knew that there is this amazing thing that feels so wonderful that you would want to do it over and over again. And children are born from that. And like, I remember laying in my bed with an erection for several hours. My heart was beating strongly. And I was like, am I sick? What's going on? I didn't know what was going on in my body. I was just incredibly aroused and I didn't know what to do with that at that time. And how old was I? Maybe eight? So I got like a sex talk from my father at around age 13 when he was like, okay, you are already older enough, so let's talk. And he was like very focused on not making a girl pregnant. And he asked me if I know, and I said, yes, condoms. And he's like, oh, how do you know that? Almost like it was a secret that nobody should know that there was only the initiated group and this was supposed to be the initiation, but I already knew it. So he kind of like, all right, probably know it all <laughs> already. So it just really did last five or ten minutes. And as we never spoke about it before, it was very awkward. It was not relaxed. I felt uncomfortable. It came out of a blue without any lead in. So it was like the only thing in the family, really. I knew that my parents sometimes had like private time on their own when they would, in our tiny, tiny apartment in the mountains, when they would remove the handle from the door of the room and they would be like, okay, now we are going to cuddle. So I knew something was going on behind the closed door. And I was like, hmm, interesting. Okay, that's what happens. Just another thing that the adults do. But no talk about sex at all in school beyond like physical education. So this is how male body works, female body works. And that was at the age of 14. Okay. So when did you learn about condoms and what they were? I think from friends in school. At some point, my friend found some porn somewhere in the forest, you know, like these magazines that were all soaking wet and we were kind of disassembling them without damaging <laughs> the picture. And I remember that, you know, there was a lot of female bodies, but very few male bodies. And when I found them, I was really aroused. I was maybe 12. And, you know, I asked my friend if he was also looking at penises and he said, no, of course not. And uh, I said, well, I'm just like comparing it with mine and it's interesting. And, you know, he didn't speak about it, but later he kind of took it against me. I grew up in an environment where nobody was openly gay. I met the first person who was openly gay at the age of 16 when I went to high school in a city. On the media, it was not spoken about. And the faggot or the Slovak version of it would be the most like insulting insult in there. So wow. that was definitely a hostile environment for anyone who was not heterosexual. Yeah. How did that affect you as a teenager? Before we moved to the city, I was very much 
on my own, you know, you imagine me roaming in the forest. I, I grew up like up in the mountains in a ski resort, basically daydreaming, imagining the world beyond. That's where the fairies later come in. I invoked them. I imagined an alternative world where people would be kind, where it would be sex positive. We could play in all sorts of kinky ways in the nature, which I love dearly. You know, I thrive in forests and jungles. So that's something that I would do and not meet too many people. But I also had a good self-protection. I would just, you know, make my boundaries and I wouldn't be bullied because just I wouldn't let them somehow. I can relate to a lot of that, like so much of that, actually. I didn't have a forest. I had an orange grove, but, you know, <laughs> similar amounts of space and isolation and just doing my own thing. What about your sense of identity as a gay person? Did that start pretty young? Well, so when I found out that I'm sexually attracted to men, I translated it in my head as gay. Okay, then I'm gay. And then I was like, what does it mean? Okay, maybe I should go to a gay club or gay bar. I was maybe 16 when I was in town and there was one gay bar. So I went and I was just so scared. I was just like, oh my God, how can I communicate with people when the music is so loud that I cannot hear anyone? You know, I was very scared. I was like, okay, this is not mine. The gay culture and what I was exposed there to, it never related to me. So I was like, okay, so I'm really into guys, but I never felt exactly like I belong to the gay culture culturally. Maybe politically, I definitely stand for the struggle, but the culture, I'm afraid that in many cases, instead of facing and sharing and holding each other in our traumas or in our difficulties, in the gay culture, it's very often alcohol and drugs and sex that are used for soothing, for, you know, like painkillers, which you don't deal with your traumas if you just eat painkillers. And I also did that with casual sex. Whenever I would feel bad, I would use sex as a mood regulation tool. And I don't like to do that anymore. With the radical fairies, we would have something called heart circle, where only one person shares at the time and they can share whatever they want. And then you hear people dealing with their own stuff. And, you know, by active listening, I'm also dealing with my own stuff. And I realize, oh, I'm not the only one who is struggling. Others also are. Whereas when we just pretend that everything is gay, everything is happy, you know, everything is sunny. I don't think the word gay is also helpful because it means happy, cheerful. And then we are trying to be that because the words have a big power over us. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. I never thought about that before. Yes. So, you know, being cheerful, marrying gay. Yes, sometimes when I feel that, but I also like to be sad. And sometimes I'm angry and sometimes I'm frustrated. Sometimes I'm, you know, without energy and power. It's not every day that I can talk with an amazing person like you on the podcast. And I do feel truly gay right now. <laughs> yes, uh, me too. I feel so gay right now. And I'm so glad you said all of those things because it's true. Those other sides of me, those other feelings that I have, I honor them greatly. And they're not what I put out into the world because they're for me and they serve the different purpose. And I think it's so beautiful that you said that. Okay, I have a couple of timeline questions. When did you discover Radical Fairies? I was 23 and long story short, I went to teach English to Austria, which is 
like one hour away from Bratislava, Slovakia, but totally different because of the Iron Curtain, which no longer exists, but it still has a big impact, right? And there I started meeting people and, you know, queer circles and a great friend of mine. And then fairies appeared in my life while I was in the countryside because we invoked them into our life with my queer friend E. And it was just really good because... We wished for a community consciously that was sex positive, gender fluid, fun. That was these three things that she would ask for. And I would go for creative and connected to nature and spiritual. And we made like a ritual with fire and throwing our body liquids into it in the middle of winter. And half a year later, she would be with dykes on bikes in the leather in the rainbow parade in Vienna. And there was a bunch of guys dressed in flower dresses. And they were like, we are the radical fairies of Austria. And she was like, wow, come to my place. I own this little plot of jungle. And I was there. And that's how I met fairies. Okay. Wow. That's incredible. Okay. I want to rewind a little bit. First, you mentioned going to a gay bar. You also mentioned being 16. Can you give us context about bars and ages that you're allowed to go into them where you're from? You're speaking about somebody who grew up in a culture where alcohol is omnipresent. You know, I was first drunk at the New Year's Eve 2000 when I was 11. But anyway, I have these big milestones in my life. For the first 15 years, I lived in the mountains. High school, 15 to 19, I was in the capital city of Slovakia. And then I moved out. First, I went to travel a gap year. I was also traveling and couch surfing since I was 17. Until I was 16, I spoke zero zilch English. So I learned it out of my own inner motivation because I wanted to explore the world. So then I would study in the Czech Republic and then I would already hang out with the people in Austria. It was geographically very close. And I call myself neophiliac. I'm neophil, like I love everything that is new and different. So I would live in this triangle of the three countries, Czech Republic, Slovakia and Austria. That was in my 20s. You can officially drink and smoke since you're 18 and the age of consent is 15. So that's the reality that I navigate. Okay, and then to rewind further, you got aroused for the first time in a big way when you were eight. When did you start touching yourself? So I didn't know, you know, that masturbation was a thing and how I could do that. I just knew that my penis had to enter a hole for me to feel that good thing, right? From that film. So I was trying to find a suitable hole, not on people. <laughs> But out there in nature, sticking my penis in the ground, erected, but that was a bit too harsh. Then finding some ski sticks, which were kind of big enough, but if they were made of plastic, didn't work. So that was not a way. I didn't find anything that would resemble, you know, vagina or anus or mouth or something nice and soft. But what I realized is when I was showering and I, I got an erection, maybe age 11 or so, we had really strong power in the shower at home. And also the temperature could be quite high. So I would just aim the water on my cog and I realized that it felt good. And then I was like exploring with the pressure. And at some point I would feel the fireworks of feeling that I never felt before and it was just so good and I remember like actually my knees went weak and I sat down in the shower and I was like wow my first thought was 
Why haven't I been doing this all along? Why haven't I done this before? I realized that water is a friend. I also knew that was something forbidden and we didn't have a lock on our bathroom. And instead of the lock that used to be there, there was a little hole. So I would like cover it with a towel somehow and hope that nobody would enter and nobody ever entered. But then it continued because there was this therapeutic pool where there were these streams in the spa where my mom was working you know you are supposed to massage your back with that and when i was there sometimes on my own i would massage my front with that <laughs> amazing so really for a while it was just water and then i realized that my hand could be you know also turned somehow into something circular with my fingers on the clip of my cock so i learned how to masturbate that way and I remember that was pre-ejaculation. So I had a lot of orgasms before uh, my body actually could ejaculate. And then I remember how I was like observing how like the first drop came when I already knew that, you know, there should be something. I was like, oh, this is it, but it's so little and it's getting more and a bit more. And then by the age of 14, I was shooting several meters. <laughs> wow, that's so cool. Did you ever try to like hit certain things in the forest? I could imagine you just out there like aiming for a tree. I didn't. But I heard about this. I don't know if it's an urban legend, but you know that boys masturbate together and there is like a piece of bread in the center and the one who comes the last has to eat it or something. Okay, if anyone out there has done that, will you please share that story? I asked these two people and they are like, yeah, of course, I, we masturbated with other boys and it was nothing homosexual about that. That was just boys playing with each other. And I'm like, wow, I wish I had that. Yeah, I hear that from a lot of people now, actually, like very, very common. So when did you start playing with other people? So I was a very curious kid. And once when my mother and father and me and my sister, we went to the seaside in Croatia. And we would drive around and sleep in different places. And once we would sunbathe in a rocky kind of unofficial beach and nearby there was a nude beach. And I was like already excited, you know, like, oh, maybe I could go there just like for a walk and look at the people and the bodies. I didn't go. But then there was one naked person who was kind of walking up on the cliff. He had such a tan as if he never wore anything in his life. And he was looking at me as like, wow. And I got like scared, but at the same intrigued. And then I went for a walk in the direction where he walked. And then like he called me and then I followed him to the bushes. And that might have been my first cruising experience. I came there, he touched my crotch, he took off my swimming suit, then he, you know, I was very hard, he sucked me, and then at some point he turned around and opened his ass and spit on it, and I'm like, okay, and I fucked him, and then I remember, like, really liking it, and he even told me, Psh. I was already then, I was, like, too loud, and he was like, be quiet, and then he wanked me, and I, then I remember me shooting so much into the dry grass but as i felt so much pleasure and it somehow was consensual because i really wanted it but at the same time i wasn't prepared for the emotions that came after that i was like oh, oh this was my dirty secret nobody can ever know i went to the sea and i rushed there i even scratched my knees that were bleeding i was really really overpowered by the feelings of shame at that time and for many years, 
I try to keep it as my secret, buried under, nobody should know, etc. Only in my late 20s, when I met the fairies, I would start unburying it. And I wrote a poem, I published it, I read it in a fairy gathering on stage where I cried, but people really held it for me in a, something that's called No Talent Show. So like I started processing it and right now it's a part of me. Yes, I was a curious kid. I know also how, like at that time, I didn't wish anything more than have sex. <laughs> and it came to me, but I wasn't ready to all the emotions that came with that. I also remember wishing to meet my older self and have sex with my older self. I kind of trusted that my older self would take good care of me. And I was also super curious to find out what my body would develop into. And, yeah. you know, like I was fantasizing about meeting me in the future. That's so cool. I did something similar, although I don't think I thought about having sex with myself. Okay, if you look back on that idea now, do you think you would be a good lover to your younger self? Like how you've turned out now? Like, what do you think about that idea looking back now? I could be good, caring lover for pretty much anybody. That's where the benevolent comes from, you know. Bene in Latin is well and vole is to wish. So benevolent is the one who wishes well. But I am also very careful because I know what emotional turmoil can come from that. And how in my early, you know, when I was 17 and I had my first sex with a boy, I was like, oh my God, so now we need to be boyfriends. And now I'm in love and how fragile those emotions were at that time. So I am not sure. I, right now would be very careful if I had a younger lover. I think we would speak a lot. We would, you know, explore our dreams and desires and wishes and maybe go into a physical exploration and maybe not. Maybe keep it sensual rather than erotic. Keep it lighter, you know, because... You know, going to fucking might be too much to take at once. I value the progression of the steps. That is beautiful. How was it for you being gay in your family? Did it come up? Did your family know? Did you talk about it through your formative years? Later after this, I buried this experience. I didn't have anything. And then I tried something with a girl, but this was like kissing and petting and I met her in the Christian youth around age 16 so we couldn't go further and I knew everything about not to do that in that environment so I didn't and then I had one experience with a boy where well we both were virgins so well I saw myself as one at least and he was also unexperienced but I let him go for me anally and it hurt like a lot but I also didn't tell him because I was like no, maybe this is how it's supposed to be and I'll find the pleasure later. It was not good later straight from receptive anal sex. But then at the age of 17, an angel came to my life. So I was already doing some online dating platforms and there was this boy, he was 21, I was 17, and he lives in the next town and already on the chat, it was like the private messages that had like only so many characters that you could write in one and we would have 
five, seven, ten different strands of conversation running simultaneously. We really understood each other so well. And then when we met, you know, today when you chat, you wait for the answer and then it goes rather slow. But back there, he was busy answering to the messages that I wrote and I was busy answering to other messages. It was amazing. And then we met and then it was very big fire. I remember our first, we made love like in the vineyard for the whole night until dawn at the first time. And he was a very good lover. Also, I remember I was not out to my family yet and he had a very nice mom and his parents were like welcoming to me. And then we would spend many hours in his room and his mom would be just like making fun. Like, oh, are you having sex all that time? <laughs> but it was like not really judgmental. It was just, yeah, it's happening. And it was just so sweet and nice. And he was like really kind to me. So before that, I was doubting. Am I cute? I had so many doubts about me, like many teenagers do. And he made me feel seen. He gave me attention. Also, his sexuality was really in some way light and fiery. Mm. You know, he had this long, curly ginger hair and he was so beautiful. Then also, you know, we had uh, anal sex, first condoms, then we talked about it. We decided condomless. He taught me how to douche and so on. And then I remember I still was like afraid, but at his birthday, I said, okay, let's go for it. You can fuck me. And he was so nice and so sweet and so slow. So I remember it very, very dearly. And also if it was dirty, we would just make fun, you know, whatever chocolate and let's wash it off. It was just super easy. So a lot of the shame that I had was kind of washed off. Also, I wasn't touched much through my early teens. Somehow my parents would stop touching in our culture after 12 or something. Yeah, that's just how it was. And, uh, you know, at that time in my early teens, the highlight of my, you know, time being touched was when I went to the hairdresser. I also wanted to have my hair long. So it was like, I don't want to have my hair cut. But at the same time, it's the only time when I get touched and it feels so good and I get the goosebumps all over my body. So then I was kind of hungry for touch. And this first boyfriend of mine, he gave me a lot of that. We had a very beautiful relationship. By the way, it was my only monogamous relationship. It lasted almost two years. And then he would move abroad. We would have long distance relationship, which was hard. Then at some point it ended. And I realized, oh my God, it's so difficult for me to be with one person because I'm so curious. And I also knew that in my family, I had a history of affairs, father, grandfather, and it's created a lot of pain. And I was like, I don't want to create that pain. So I need to be single. That lasted until I met a boy who said, hey, but we don't need to adhere to these societal rules of relationships. We can make it anything that we want. And then he was like, so you think we can be in a relationship and at the same time I can go and explore with other people? And he's like, yeah. So when I was 20, I got into my first polyamorous relationship. I loved it. I got the book from my queer friend in Austria, The Ethical Slut. I was like, whoa, Dossie Easton was kind of shaping my mind and Janet Hardy. Oh, I love that so much. 
with this person in a domestic relationship through my university for seven years while exploring everything. I even fell in love again with a fairy at the fairy gathering. And I had like two overlapping relationships, one in the Czech Republic, one in Austria. It's complex, of course, but I like complexity. I like intensity. I like the difficulty of that. So basically for the last 13 years, I was polyamorous. Wow. And when did you tell your family that you were gay? Did they already know? Was it during that two-year relationship? How did that unfold? Oh, that was somehow awkward because I was too shy to tell them, but I also wanted them to know. So my parents were divorced and my mom found out through my grandma. My grandma lived downstairs and she would rarely go upstairs where I was. So I was hanging out with my boyfriend that I mentioned and we would watch a film and hold hands and she would enter and she would see us. And she didn't address it immediately, but you saw her rage and she was just like criticizing something else, like, you know, a mess in the room or something. And then she asked my mom if that boy was trying to seduce me, if that boy was gay, maybe. And my mom said, I don't know. And my mom did ask me, is he gay? I said, yes. Are you? And I said, yes. <laughs> you know, it took a while for her, but she's fine and she's accepting and respectful, even though she's a nurse and she really wants me to be safe. So for her, it's very important that I take good care of myself health-wise. My father, similar, he came to visit me when I had already this polyamorous relationship and we were sitting drinking wine with him and his then-girlfriend and then my boyfriend would join us and I didn't tell my boyfriend that I wasn't out so he would just kiss me in front of my father <laughs> and he would just be like kind of stunned for 45 minutes completely not talking so he would talk to his girlfriend and like Oh, maybe he's just quiet. So that was very awkward ways of coming out. Wow. I love that you just were like doing your thing in front of your dad. What in your 20s unfolded in all of these times of polyamory? What happened? So as I already mentioned, there was definitely moments when I used sex as a way to feel good about myself. But also I believe practice makes perfect. And it's just fun <laughs> to try. That was Cindy Gallup and her TED talk, Make Love Not Porn. I spoke English by now, so I had like this access to all this information that is there. And it was fantastic. So Cindy Gallup in her TED talk said, you know, that how horrible it is that hardcore pornography is our own sex education. And yeah. then I was like, okay, so how do we do it differently than in this male-directed porn? I started trying to consciously go off the script. So, you know, the massage was one way of going off the script. And also, you know, meeting and having sex without taking off our clothes. It was revolutionary for some of my, you know, lovers. Or having sex without ejaculating. I got into multi-orgasmic men and uh, dry orgasms. And then I learned how to divide ejaculation from orgasming. Then I realized I can have many orgasms in a session and I can go on for a long time. And some lovers were frustrated because of that, because they wanted to just finish very quickly. And some lovers were just like, oh my God, I love to make love with you for hours. So beautiful, right? So when somebody demands my come, I'm like, you're probably going to be frustrated. I decide if I come or not. I love the energy to circulate in my body. And I, you know, come every now and then. 
I call it edging. Often people imagine edging as being tied to a bed and there is only one person edging the other. That's so much fun. Yeah, it's great for both involved. But for me, edging is also having a penetrative sex for an hour and not coming and breathing and being really connected. And it's a spiritual exercise to me. And I was also a young hippie in my early 20s. I traveled a lot and I went to the Rainbow Gathering. That was in Italy. That was my first connection with Tantra. I like to call it Neo-Tantra out of respect to the old Indian tradition that our Western interpretation has very little to do with. I also like the word Tantra because people imagine something else and that's what I go for. So when they meet me, they don't imagine straight on sex. They imagine slow connection, more spiritual, being connected with each other. And that already gives a very fertile ground for doing something off the script, which I'm really into. So I'm using the word Tantra for this purpose. And in this first workshop of Tantra out there in the forest somewhere, we learned conscious touch. So being present with the other person. And the exercise was very simple, but very effective. We would give massage to each other, shoulder massage. And first we would just like focus on the person. And then the instruction was start talking to the other person who is next to you also giving a massage. And then the qualitative difference when I was the receiver, when the person gave me a massage with full attention, it was so horrible when they were somewhere else. And I was like, wow, I so much understand what happens when I go away in my mind. That's why also with my lovers and partners, I like to make sure that we have the space to be there and that there are no unanswered questions in their mind that lets them, you know, get stuck in their mind because then they are not there, of course. So they can't enjoy their own pleasure but they cannot also be with me. And the connection is as if there was some interruption in the connection. So for many years, I was only practicing the conscious touch and that was enough. I thought to me, it's the base of tantric practice and everything else, the music, the massage, the oil, the knowing how to give sensual massage, knowing the body anatomy, knowing how to give penis massage, vulva massage, prostate massage. It's all extra, but you need to do it consciously. And that's why I think there can be tantric sex, because you can be in that zone also when you are having a penetrative sex or kinky sex. BDSM and tantra can go hand in hand for me. Oh, for me too. I think what I experienced a lot of with my former dom was that deep, deep connection. I would experience edging as he was edging himself, you know, using me. All of that was so, so hot. I'm curious to know, was Tantra the gateway to your experiencing orgasm without ejaculation? So there was this book when I was like devouring all the content in English. It was called The Multi-Orgasmic Man by Mantak Chia. And I took it very seriously. So I realized that I overdid it at some point. You know, it, there needs to be balance because all I was focusing on was not coming. I can relate. <laughs> and then my penis was like, you don't let me come, so I will not get hard for you. It really took me a while to get back into healthy sexuality by just releasing the control. So right now I see that I'm fully in control of my ejaculation, but sometimes it's okay to just let it be and let it flow. And, you know, the body has its own agenda and it wants to procreate and it thinks that's what we are doing, right? <laughs> let it have its fun sometimes. 
I knew it was a thing, but only later did I realize that I can do it first by my own and then with partners as well. Amazing. Okay, can you tell us what do you love about sex or your sex life? Well, I was just talking about it with my primary partner and it's the connection, the deep attention to the other person that we can give each other in the moment. But also it's being physical. It's a physical exercise. It's like, you know, when I oil up somebody in a tantric session and then I glide on them and I'm very there. And then when I feel safe, I can go wild into this monkey energy. And what are we but, you know, apes? Yeah. So going there and just playing and then really becoming creatively playful. I love when people experience something that they never experienced. I realized that touch can also have a very healing potential and that we are living in a society where there is a lack of touch and overflow of sexualized images in media. So it's good to just provide that touch and cuddles and closeness and holding and squeezing and all that that we so much need and love, but we don't afford it to ourselves because of our historical evolution. The heritage of Puritanism, let's call it that way. Yeah. Touch is so important to me, too. It's the foundation of everything. And I also just want to download everything in your brain straight into mine because I'm like, damn it, he's done all the research that I'm like doing now and then learning about. I've also learned a great deal from you and from your guests. So yeah. it's like a constant process of learning. And, you know, we cannot compare our, your knowledge with my knowledge because it's different. But what we can do, we have this amazing technology of words. And, you know, you sitting on a different continent. You're in an America and I am geographically in Africa. And we can talk and share and learn from each other. And the podcasting format is amazing. Yes. Okay. So what I would like to hear about next, what I would like to learn about from you next is some of your experience with the specifics of the Tantra that you do and what you offer to the partners, especially the partners that you maybe only see a handful of times and like the connection that you create from those things. And is your dominant top self a part of those experiences or how do you play with your dom self and your Tantra self? Like, are they inextricably linked? So this tender dominance is something that I've been developing recently. Allowing myself to be in charge is very, very satisfying for me. I like to delineate the playground, knowing what is okay and what is not, and then take over. And I feed on the pleasure of the others. So it's just this pleasure that I get from giving someone pleasure. And in this tantric work, I usually start with a relaxing massage and I've learned that if someone has tense shoulders, then they definitely will not have a loose asshole. So really giving that a massage and at some point feeling them to actually letting go and dropping into that relaxation is a great base for anything that involves, you know, I love to feel prostates with my fingers. I love penetration. I love to even go deep into the muscle when I feel a knot in the muscle. It's somehow sadistic, but it's benevolently sadistic. I realize that this is my niche. Benevolent sadism, I call it. So I go deep into their muscle and it hurts. And I just say, breathe. And they just breathe and then they relax into it. And I know that at the moment it hurts. 
which means pain is this intense experience in the moment that which brings you into your body right now. And if you no, don't resist it, it basically leads into a deeper state of relaxation. So then I'm like, okay, I know that you'll feel better after this. So that's somehow benevolent dominance in connection with the massage work that I do. That is amazing. This might be a useless question. I don't know. But does your training in anthropology and relationship counseling factor into your sex life? Absolutely. So basically, it was my first master that I did in uh, relationship counseling. And in that time, I learned a lot from Esther Perel. I love her ways and her clarity. Then that plays definitely a role into how I relate to partners, erotic or otherwise. And then in my uh, anthropology training, that was already, I had one master's, you know, studying is free in Europe, mostly. So you can study as much as you want. And then I went as an exchange student to Denmark and I was like, ha, Denmark, you're saying you're so open-minded and easygoing. So I'm going to try to research the most off thing, like, you know, sexuality. How do we learn about social sexuality? I call it sociosexual enskillment, getting new skills in this aspect of sexuality. I claim that it is something that we need to talk about. The worst thing that we can do is to keep it for the teenagers to figure it out on their own, because then they reach to all available resources, which are their peers and hardcore pornography, which is not great, you know? So I'm also happy when teenagers or young adults listen to these podcasts because not only do we get the vocabulary to speak about it, we also start feeling more adequate, hearing the plethora of human experiences in the sexual realm. And so this is very important. And with the fairies, I went to consent workshops and all kind of different things, yummy things, where we ask each other questions such as, how would you like to touch me for your pleasure? And then you need to reflect what gives me pleasure. And then I'm like, oh, I would like to explore your body hair with my lips. Would that be all right for you? And like, yes, but stay away from my armpits and my genitals. And then I'm like, great. And like these negotiations, I think that should be somehow included in everyone's sex education throughout the world. There is so much we can do through words, and we are doing that work here, but there is also more that needs to be done through practice. And you can practice with your partners, but you can also practice non-sexually. How could I touch your arm for your pleasure? Well, there is nothing sexual about it, but it gives you a clue about how you can communicate about it age appropriately. Yes, I love that. Age appropriately and appropriate to the relationship you have with the person in the context of the speaking. You know, I am very intimate, not in a sexual way with my little sister. We call them tickles. I'll tickle her arm and touch her arm and give her head scratches. And I love that because I gain pleasure out of touching other humans. And it's, you know, it's like the haircut, the intimacy of the close touch in these spaces. It's so beautiful. Exactly. Yes. And there is so many different types of touch. Many of them are appropriate even in every situation. I can caress your hand gently or, you know, touch your cheek if that's how we established it, even on the bus. Why not? Yes. 
I personally don't like public sex in a way that somebody might accidentally discover me because I don't like to shock other people or, you know, give them some kind of trauma or because they don't know how to process that experience. But I had a hot sex on the beach yesterday, making sure that nobody was there. And I had amazing merging with the nature and with everything around there. That's how I navigated. Fuck yeah. Are there any specific stories you have that you haven't shared yet to highlight any other favorite things about sex? So I would like to speak about group sex and gay saunas. I would like to speak about sexually transmitted infections and navigating germs and about female produced porn. <gasps> Let's go. Spas and saunas. For I have so many fantasies about sexy spa spaces now that I know they exist in Europe. Like I need to go ASAP. I don't. Are they open? I mean, I will have to research and go. But every country has their own regulation and they change all the time. It's an exciting maze of policies that you need to navigate to be a traveler in 2022. So when I was 22, I realized that there is something called gay sauna. And I just heard it from my female body friend in Austria. And then I was like, let's go together. And she was like, but they are only for penis owners. And I'm like, really? And it sounded so strange, but that was true. And then I went to one in Vienna. I loved it. The one in Vienna is 18th century, built secretly by the member of the royalty underground under the central. It's just something. It's quite special. And then the one in my town in the Czech Republic was a lot more shabby, you know, dodgy, with a small sauna, clean, pretty hot. Then there was a whirlpool and then there were some cubicles with porn VHSs playing on loop. But I realized that Tuesdays are what they call a youth night. And everybody under the age of 24 has a free entrance. And otherwise, it was quite expensive for me, you know, as a penniless student. So I was like, okay, I was a penniless student, but I wasn't a penisless student. And <laughs> I came there every Tuesday for quite a while, especially in winter, because it was very cold and I love saunas and I would just go there. And then what I learned there was how to say no and how to set boundaries because these places are frequented by older men usually. And I realized that I like to be watched. I'm a bit of an exhibitionist, but I'm also a voyeur. I also like to watch people having a good time. But then I needed to learn a lot of vocabulary about how to say no. Many people wanted to touch me, but they didn't want to be touched by many of them. So I had to, from very gentle using my hands to signal no through more put your hands off now or ice cream kind of thing, like different levels, being kind and polite, starting softly, but also knowing how to stay safe. I learned that and it was a very useful skill. And then I also realized that there are different cultures about sexual consent in different countries. So in Amsterdam or Berlin or Lisbon, people were really considerate, kind and approached with either gentle touch or with maybe some looks to make sure that I was actually into that. I wanted them to get touched and they would respect a no. Because I don't see trying and failing and getting a no as harassment. Harassment is when the no is not respected and the person is trying to change the no for a yes or forcing themselves on you. Yes. So it's good to be 
kind of adventurous and daring, you know, like, let's aim for a no <laughs> kind of thing. You might be surprised how much you get when you try or you suggest things that are your wildest dreams, right? Also, in Eastern Europe, Poland, Czech Republic, where I would be in the gay saunas, it was much harder for me to set boundaries, as if people were more clumsy around consent, they would see no as a sign of try harder and stuff like that. So it's very much a cultural thing. And I believe it has to do with how deeply sexuality is suppressed in different cultures. Yeah. This difference, I'm also a traveler, so I see these differences. And it also shows in how easy an access to testing for sexually transmitted infections is. So, you know, in Eastern Europe, I experienced a doctor who, when I wanted to get tested, would ask me a million questions why I want to get tested, what's the risk, and then even say that I shouldn't have sex because it's dangerous and that uh, shaming as a preventive method, it still exists. Oh, no. There are some places in the world, like Southeast Asia, for example, you need to pay a lot of money to get tested and they, they only test you for something. So living in Denmark... I am extremely privileged to just come to a really nice clinic where people are sweet to you, you know, minimize the risk, but don't shame you. They just inform you as good as possible. And I've learned so much about how to stay as safe as possible from those people. And I get tested quite regularly now, at least once every two, three months. And I did test positive for some things in the past. I tested positive for gonorrhea once in Austria when I noticed a white discharge on my underwear and I went to get tested and then I got an antibiotic and I was treated. The whole process was easy. The injection hurts, right? But then you just get sleepy for a night and I don't want my body to be exposed to antibiotics because I want to have a healthy gut flora and I, yes. you know, everything is connected there and the good bacteria die together with the bad bacteria and to reboost yourself. Mm -hmm. Then I once was suspicious maybe I have something or not and that was in Portugal and even though public service is available for free testing they only test seven people in a day in eight hours so in the morning at six you need to pick up one of the seven slots I was successful wow. and the people are extremely slow and bureaucratic very kind but also the results take a long time so the lovely doctor, she would be like, well, you can wait three weeks for your results or we can give you the treatment now and then you know that it's okay. And I'm like, okay, I wanted to go to the countryside. I didn't want to go to the capital city in three weeks. It was hard for me to imagine three weeks of abstaining. So I was like, okay, yeah. treat me. And I imagined she would only give me pills, but she just took this big injection and stuck it into my butt cheek. I was like, okay, so I'll just take the pills and then I take them later when I have the result. But that's not how it was. Hooray for taking care of that sweet, sweet body of yours. And I see sexually transmitted infections as any other infections. You know, it's a matter of hygiene. So I just learned to fetishize condoms. I learned to like condoms yes. by remembering a time when I put on my father's condom secretly. And I was just so excited when I was a kid, like, oh, so turned on. My cock was still small for it. And I was like, wow, now I feel so adult. And later in life, you know, condoms, sometimes it can take the flow away and it can be awkward. And, you know, they are bothering sometimes. But 
I kind of reconnected with this exciting experience from childhood and therefore, quote unquote, fetishize the condoms. So I get turned on by a condom. Condoms for me are like diving suit. They allow me to go places where I couldn't go safely without them. Absolutely. Also, to anyone listening out there who's like, oh, I hate condoms. It just never feels as good. One piece of advice that I have heard recently works for people is to practice masturbating with a condom on. So it is a little investment, but it allows you to by yourself. I have heard reported by penis owners that it allows one to feel this sensation without the anxiety of like, am I going to come? Am I going to stay hard? Am I going to not come? And you just experience the sensation. So something that could be explored. <laughs> When you say masturbating with a condom, probably most people imagine putting a condom on erect penis and masturbating. But if you dive into the depth of animated GIFs on the internet, there are different creative ways of actually low-cost sex toys for penis owners. So, you know, you blow it, you tie the end, and then basically lube it, and you have this toy made of the condom that is actually super hot, you can practice getting familiar and intimate with latex that they are made of. Yes. And then can you tell me a little bit about porn? Do you watch it? What do you like? So when I was younger, I would watch the freely accessible porn. I remember actually being maybe 13 and sneaking into my mom's office where there was very slow internet and downloading pictures and being frustrated the videos didn't work but the animated gifts did and like i learned how to delete or clear the history of the browser very much but then i realized that the freely accessible porn is very repetitive that it's the same thing over and over again some people meet then they make out for a little bit sucking fucking very much the same thing often it didn't feel authentic and recently i realized that most porn that is out there is male lens male gaze Yeah. And then there is female produced porn. I found out about female producer Erika Lust, who is a Swedish producer from Barcelona. She has amazing things out there in Belessa and other channels that I actually started paying for, even though it's like predominantly straight porn. But I love that it has stories, ex-confessions. There is like people submit their ideas and then they shoot porn about it. And it's so diverse and it's so real. Or, you know, like the blind dates when two porn actors meet like blind and talk, discuss, you know, pre, and then they just do whatever they want. It's so hot. And the guys are extremely skilled. So for the last two years, I only had one experience with a Valve owner or one or two in the last two years, but I've been studying the theory. So I know from all these super skilled people how to please a Valve owner. And I think I would be good at it. Just dating is beyond me. I don't know how to get there, right? With the gays, it's so easy, you know? That's why I say I'm homo-flexible, not seeing myself as gay. I see myself as a fairy right now, much more. And the fairy is very ancient word for what we call gay today, but also is this 
ephemeral creatures from the forest who, you know, sometimes appear and then disappear. Yes, and could offer magic to anyone. And then I'm like, okay, so from my tantric session, I realized I don't need to be turned on super much by a person to whom I give pleasure or with whom we explore the sexuality as long as there are healthy boundaries. So I'm like, why not with people that I would not, you know, go for immediately? So I have all this theory, I just need to find safe space or create one where we could actually practice and, you know, express our things, you know, like straight consensual cruising or clubs, maybe in the burner world, it exists a little bit, you know, to have these temples and these workshops. And so these kind of places I really like, you know, just label it a workshop and the adults will get playful anywhere. It's amazing what happens when you just say, okay, now we are having a Tantra workshop and we will now all share our desires and boundaries and then we will do them if people already feel comfortable with each other. It's just amazing what happens when people feel safe and can express their desires and boundaries. Fuck yeah. Oh my God, that's what I want. And I'm going to have a birthday party on Saturday, April 30th. And I think it's going to be sex themed. Like, I think it's going to start out as a gallery showing, you know, so anyone can come to the first part of it. And I think the second part, there will be, you know, a little break. And it's like, okay, if you don't want to get sexy, leave now. And then I imagine some sort of like workshop, you know, primer thing. So everyone can be on the same page. And then an erotic performance that starts a little sex party. That's kind of my dream. We'll see what can happen. But mark your calendars. It'll be in Los Angeles. I haven't figured out the safety details or how I'm going to actually do it yet. But I'm going to see if I can make something happen. So planting those seeds. I'm super curious who will show up because this is something that, you know, you might be surprised how far people would be willing to travel for something like that. Of course, we have to take in COVID considerations and all of this, but I think it could be the launch for the real in-person part of Mission 69, too, and to see what I can make happen with Available. So that's my dream. I want to speak about COVID for a little while. Please. COVID and sexually transmitted infections are infections. And we are, you know, these global monkeys who are trying to outwit all the germs, all of them, viruses and bacteria. So for me, both COVID and traveling, as well as having condomless sex with people with whom I talk about sexual health, are very related themes. It adds to going to hippie gatherings in the middle of nowhere where the hygiene is strange because once in the past, I did catch typhoid fever at one of these gatherings, which is a deadly disease that is almost eradicated in Europe, but someone brought it from India. So I'm very aware of hygiene, but at the same time, I want to live my life fully and with a lot of pleasure. So I would travel also throughout the pandemic, taking into consideration the distance, traveling off crowded places, going into the forests, spending time on my own, getting vaccinated when it was available, getting sick with COVID after vaccine and being happy about it because now I have a boost. Me too. Yeah. Antibodies. Yes. Yes. You know, I have <laughs> yes. Delta antibodies. What can Omicron do with me? Huh? So right now I feel very safe to travel. I feel a little bit like the Super Mario who ate the mushroom. So I can go around and I still want to be kind and considerate to those who would get sick even if I carried something. So it's related and uh, it shouldn't stop us. And I'm afraid that 
COVID is taking us the most precious away from us, or at least the approach to it, and that's togetherness. Mm. Because we are social apes and we thrive on togetherness and communication and connection. And without that, it's really, really a sad world of isolation, which can have such big impacts that we cannot even really imagine on a global level. Absolutely. I keep thinking there is so much beauty in what the internet can help us discover. We can explore so many curiosities through the internet, but there are some curiosities that we have to explore with our physical technology of our actual human bodies. So I'm so glad that you've said that. What hopes do you have for your sexual self going forward? I keep saying that I'm looking forward to my 60s. My astrologer told me that the life is going to get better as I age. So somehow I'm actually excited about aging. I'm realizing that with the experience, with my attention to myself, to my body, with my skills, life is getting better in many aspects, and that includes the sexual. So, you know, I have some exciting visions as an Aquarius about how, you know, we could do certain things together. So, you know, I envision a consensual tantric brothel or play spaces around the world. A queer one. We need a queer brothel too. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Queer yes. doesn't mean that you are fucking a person of the same sex. It's a complete shift in thinking and way of approaching. It's queering our way of relating to each other. So transcending the heterosexual imitation that we had and just recreating it. Yes, and inviting creativity from all parts of ourselves, not these normal scripts, like you said. Exactly. And staying kind and healthy and strong and caring, playful. Fuck yeah. Is there anything else that we need to say about your sex life before I ask you the wrap-up question? I like natural bodies. I like diverse bodies. I also like big bodies, given that people take care of themselves and are kind to themselves and it's difficult with a big body because you're in a culture where being quote-unquote fat is seen as unhealthy and it's completely opposite to the media-induced picture of perfection. I enjoy hairy bodies of all sexes and genders. I just love that we are the spiritual being in the, having this embodied experience. So let's Treat our bodies well, ourselves, and treat the bodies of others well. So, yeah, I really want to give pleasure and healing and massages and touches to a lot of lovers throughout my life while still being kind to my partners. Beautiful. And if you could go back in time and give younger you a piece of sex advice, what age or ages would you pick and what would you say? I would translate the whole Sex Stories podcast into Slovak and I would let my younger self listen to it, you know, choose the episode that he wanted and just listen about people's stories as they are speaking from their own eye perspective. Because advice as such, you should do this or you should do that, doesn't work for me. So these stories from the first person singular are what works the best. Yes. Oh, thank you. That is such a huge honor. And I'm very grateful for that framing. Ugh. I want the same, too. I really wish that I had had increased access to other people's personal experience because 
yeah, applying those things for my own self, applying other people's rules has led me to the hard parts of life. And the more I check in with myself, the more I'm like, oh, oh, ease, joy. Wow. <laughs> do you have a sex question for me? What do you do when someone's energy is lingering in your body and you don't like that energy to be there? You know, sometimes people give us super tasty, nice, yummy energies and we want it to be and resonate in our body. But sometimes the experience is a bit off and it doesn't have to be bad sex or rape. It can be also bad look or something, you know, when somebody's nasty to you. How do you cleanse yourself? Mm, what a juicy question. Well, first, I think I'd like to acknowledge a little part of my own personal privilege, the way that I'm made up. It takes a lot for someone to stick on me in that way. I was recently describing this to a friend. My energetic field when it comes to other people, I'm kind of like a jellyfish mixed with a sieve or a colander, you know, so a lot of people's bullshit passes right through me. I'm very good at being like, oh, that's your thing. That's not my thing. You know, and in the moments where it hits a part of me, you know, where someone else's judgment mirrors the worst things that I think about my own self, those tend to be the ones that stick. And for me, just to get really specific and clear, the ones that are most pokey to me are like, I'm bad at communicating. I'm going to be disconnected no matter how hard I try. Like, no matter how much I practice talking about sex, I'm going to get rejected for the rest of forever. You know, those are the big kind of stories. And like, I am bad, wrong, terrible, mean, unwantable, unlovable. So when that stuff starts to stick on me really deeply, my first mode of response is to check in with my human body. Is there a person that can give me a hug? Can I take a warm bath? Do I need to eat food? Do I need to go for a brisk walk or do a bunch of jumping jacks? Like, what physically do I do with this technology? Because the more that I listen to this neuroscience podcast that I'm obsessed with called The Huberman Lab, the more that I read work by Emily Nagoski, she and her sister wrote a book called Burnout. So it gives a lot of practical tools of just caretaking. But I try to just move that energy through, holding in my sensitive emotional mind that that person is me is a reflection of me, is me on another day, is me criticizing myself, is whatever. And so using then the tools that I learn in my meditation practices of inviting, using myself, my submissive powers, to absorb whatever toxic, whatever is bothering them. Like I imagine it coming out of them and into me and then I can transmute it because I can get rid of that energy. So you know, that's just holding it inside and letting go of any judgments, not in a way of like, oh, I can't feel a bad feeling, just noticing if there is discomfort. And pretty much all I do these days is like, oh, well, this is an interesting human experience. Is there something to learn here? Or do I just need to sit with it for a little while? And that's pretty much why I'm like one of the happiest people I know. This is beautiful. Checking in with your body and giving it some comfort is extremely useful. I often think that I need to think about it and be all mental, but actually that's just... That's where I get stuck. Yeah. Warm bath. Yeah. Food. Yeah. Go into the forest and breathe. Yeah. Meditate. Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm so glad you said that because I live in a very beautiful concrete box in Los Angeles. But over the past two years with the pandemic, I spent the first year of the pandemic mostly in here alone. And most of 2021 was me being like, I got to go back to the farm. I spent like half of my time at my family's farm in the dirt, with the dirt, touching the earth. 
and getting connected in that way as well. So yeah, bodies, human tactile things. <laughs> getting out of screens has been good for me too. <laughs> Dobromil! Yes, Vaya? Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you very much. It was such a pleasure. And I've learned more about myself through just reflecting on it. Oh, and likewise.